Well, good morning. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's, uh, Thanksgiving's a little bit extra special for me personally because I was born on Thanksgiving morning, 1981. And I was with my father this week and we were reminiscing about that morning and he was telling me what a great day that was. Because not only was I born in that day, but I was born in the morning, which allowed him to get set up to watch the Cowboys come from behind <laughs> to beat the Chicago Bears 10 to 9 that afternoon. And so you can say I was born with a, with a deep love for the Cowboys and probably somewhat of an emotional complex along the way. But in all seriousness, I do hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I am thankful to be here this morning and for us to have our Bibles open to what I consider to be one of the great passages of Scripture in all the Bible. I mean, there are some tremendous things in the Bible and some tremendous passages from the Apostle Paul, but Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 is right up there with the best of them. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles there. And I'll begin reading at verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, as you've heard throughout our course of the series in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians roughly breaks down into two sections. Section one is chapters one through three, and this is a section that's heavy on doctrine. Paul really emphasizes and focuses on our position as those who are in Christ and then chapters 4 through 6, he transitions a little bit, and he talks, and that's more about practice. So how do we live out our faith as those who are in Christ? And the passage we're looking at this morning really is a passage that looks back on chapters 1 through 3 and looks ahead to the section to come. And as we think back over some of the truths we've heard in these first few chapters, one of the central themes that Paul has articulated time and time again is that God is doing something brand new. That God has brought Jew and Gentile, the Jew and the non-Jew, and he's brought them together as one in Christ. And this is called the church. And it's brand new. It's a brand new deal. God's doing a new thing. And Paul has articulated this time and time again. Back in chapter 2, in verse 13, Paul writes these words. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were formerly far off, the, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He goes on to say, so that in him he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. 
And as we have mentioned, this joining of Jew and Gentile into one was no small deal. This was extremely, extremely significant. And not only was this a significant change, this was something that was long entrenched. These distinctions and division between the groups had been there for roughly 1,500 years. So after 1,500 years of division, something dramatic happens, though. It's what we celebrate in a few weeks, the incarnation. As God took on flesh and he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, and he ministered, and he taught, and he healed, and he willingly went to the cross where he died for our sins. And he, was, and he rose from the grave on the third day. And then he ascended on high. And he told his disciples to go make disciples of all nations. And then in Acts chapter 2, we have that dramatic event where the church is birthed at Pentecost. And this is a brand new shift. This is a completely different thing. And so now the issue confronting Paul and the early church is pretty clear. Now that the Jews and the Gentiles have become one theologically, now that the Jews and the Gentiles have become one positionally, how are they going to live together practically? So if theologically, yes, they are one new man under Christ, how are they going to live together practically, relationally, and experientially? Because that is a much different problem. And so this is what he confronts. And with the challenge of unity in the church in the midst of this new paradigm, Paul responds by dropping to his knees and offering this magnificent prayer. He moves from exposition to intercession. He moves from enlightening the church to praying for enablement. And Paul, see, Paul knows that the only one who can heal this divide is God. This is going to take something supernatural. This is not something for the United Nations. This is not something that everybody needs to take some kind of tolerance course so that we can all get along. This is a supernatural problem where there's only a supernatural solution. And so Paul goes to the source and he prays to God. And this is a prayer that's not just for Jews and Gentiles who didn't get along 2,000 years ago. This is a prayer for us at Wayside Chapel in 2016. This is a prayer for the church corporately and for the believer individually. And as we look at it, I'm going to break it down basically into three parts. Three parts. We have the part one is the preparation. Part two is the prayer. And part three is the praise. So we have the preparation, we have the prayer, and then the praise. And first is the preparation. And this is found in verses 14 through 15. It says, for this reason. Now, the reason he's talking about this reason is what he's already written in chapters 2 and 3. This joining together of Jew and Gentile. This new era taking place. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So Paul prepares his heart for prayer by recognizing God as his sovereign creator. He's the father of fathers. He's the father of nations. He's the father of families. He is our sovereign Lord. And he kneels showing submission to God, which was not the common posture of prayer in that day. People prayed while standing. So Paul, on his knees in submission, he is putting himself before the Lord and praying fervently that God would move. 
And you see, not only does Paul know God as his sovereign Lord, but he also knows God as his benevolent Father. His benevolent Father. You think of Luke chapter 11 when Jesus is teaching the disciples. And he's talking about ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find. And he's teaching this. And he looks at the disciples and he says, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish. You will not give him a snake instead, will you? He says, what, what if they ask you for an egg? You're not going to give him a scorpion, are you? And then in verse 13, Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, fathers, good fathers, desire to give good things to their children. And if you're a father in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We yearn to bless our children. We yearn to give them joy and to see them succeed. It's a passion for fathers. I was um, in my bed last week, and I was really tired, and I was laying down with my five-month-old Caleb. And I was just kind of exhausted, so I do what exhausted people do sometimes, and I just kind of slam my head face down onto the bed. And then all of a sudden, I just hear this laugh, this beautiful laugh. And I look up, and Caleb's sitting right there looking at me, huge smile and laughing. So I do what all good fathers do. I did it again. (laughs) And he laughed even louder. So I said, oh, it's on now. It's on. So about five minutes later, before I had to go get checked out for a concussion or nausea or something, he's just laughing the whole time. And let me tell you something. That was the best five minutes of my day. The best five minutes of my day. Now, you may hear that and say, louder milk, you've got a depressing life, bro. (laughs) But you don't know my boy. And you don't know how it makes me feel to see him filled with joy. And it made my day. And I am an evil dad, not God the Father. And so Paul goes before the Father fervently praying, affirming two essential characteristics of the character of God. That he is sovereign and that he is good. He is Lord of all and he is a good father who we can trust. And so with this preparation complete, Paul now moves to the the prayer, which is verses 16 through 19. And in verse 16, he starts with the actual prayer request. So verse 16 is the prayer request. And this is what Paul writes. He says that he, God the Father, would grant you, the believer, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Paul requests one thing in particular from God. There's one thing on his wish list. And it's that the people, the believers, would be strengthened in their inner man by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that he would grant this strength and power according to God's riches. 
Meaning not just the, the, what's left over in God's pocket, not the spare change, not out of his riches, but according to his riches, in proportion to his wealth, in proportion to his value, in proportion to what he has to offer. But what does this mean? How, how are we strengthened in the inner man? What's going on here? Paul prays that we would be strengthened in the inner man. And, but how does this power come alive in us? And the power to us comes through the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we spoke about this previously in in a message in Ephesians chapter 1. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the agent by which we become filled with the power of God. You see, we as believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We possess the Spirit of God. He is inside our very being. But we as believers can either yield to the Spirit and walk by the Spirit and thus be filled with the power of the Spirit, or we can yield to the flesh, the lust of the flesh, and walk by the flesh, and as Ephesians 4 says, quench the Spirit of God. And Paul prays that each person would be strengthened in their core, strengthened in their inner being, in order that they may live the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life that God created them to live. He prays that their spiritual battery would be fully charged, would be fully charged that they might go live out the life that God created them to live. That's his request. And so then... That's the request. In the next few verses, what Paul does, he says, okay, if this domino falls, if verse 16 happens, if the inner man is strengthened, these things are to follow. These things are to follow. Verses 17 through 19 are results to the strengthening of the inner man. And the first of these results is found at the beginning of verse 17. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your heart's Through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this dwelling in the heart that Paul is describing here is not justification. This is not a salvation by grace situation here. This is what Paul is focusing on here is our sanctification. Our sanctification. The dwelling here is not one of residence as it is one of hospitality hospitality christ indwells all believers we know that from the scriptures we know that from places like colossians 1 but he is especially at home he especially dwells in the believer who follows him and who makes his home his heart a welcome place for christ to reside as you may have heard me mention before, the summer after my first senior year at A&M, I took two senior years. At A&M, we call that a victory lap. <laughs> my parents had a different name for it, but that's okay. So the summer after my first senior year, I studied abroad in France. So I spent the summer in France, and I was located predominantly in Normandy with some time in Paris. And if you know your geography and you know your history, you know the significance of Normandy. Normandy was the northern part of France where on D-Day, June 6, 1944, the Allied troops landed as they invaded France, who at the time was occupied by Nazi Germany. 
And as they secured those beachheads, and as they started moving across the country, defeating the Nazis along the way, they would come to these different French villages and towns. And you know what kind of response they would get? One of gratitude. One of celebration. One of welcoming. I was there in 2004, 60 years after D-Day, and throughout Normandy, there was still American flags all over the place. And while there, I saw pictures of American troops who had been invited into these French people's homes. They said, come into our home, sleep in our bed, eat our food. How may we serve you? What can we do to make your stay better? These were people who were not from there. These were soldiers. But they were not viewed as unwelcome intruders, but rather conquering heroes who had set them free from bondage and from living in captivity. And those of us who know Christ as Lord, those of us who have received God the Son, Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, guys, He has defeated the enemy. He has defeated the penalty of sin. He has given us the victory over the power of the sin. He is going to remove the presence of sin. He has overcome the world. He has defeated Satan. He has set us free from our bondage of iniquity and depravity. He has come to live with us. He has come to live inside of us. But how many of us then respond by treating him like an unwelcome house guest who is there by necessity but in actuality, it kind of just cost us time, money, friends, and pleasure. And Paul's prayer is that to God the Father, is that those people would be strengthened in their inner man by God the Spirit. And thus they would walk in intimacy and fellowship with God the Son our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who dwells in their hearts by faith as the guest of honor, as the one we seek to please in all things. And as we experience this intimacy with Christ, we begin to experience and to realize the most profound truth and the most powerful force the world has ever seen, which is the love of God. It's the love of God. And we begin to realize that the God of the universe loves me. And we begin to feel and experience his power. Paul writes at the second half of verse 17, he says, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. This is remarkable. It's remarkable. Paul wants the Ephesians to understand and embrace the greatness and the vastness and the endless depths of Christ's love and thus be filled to the fullness of God, to the fullness of that love, that it may overflow Onto others. And the concept here is a profound one. And it's that love embraced becomes love extended. Love embraced becomes love extended. And notice what verse 19 says it says, To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. So recognition of the love of God is directly related to experiencing the fullness of God. Do you see that? The fullness of all that God is and all that he has to offer. The fullness of himself through love. And the greater we recognize the love of God for us, the greater we experience the life of God in us, and the greater we deliver the love of God through us. That's the message. That's the key. That's the deal. And the beautiful thing is this love is not dependent upon us conjuring up some human frail effort to love God, but rather embracing the supernatural reality that God loves us. And this is 1 John chapter 4 stuff. This is the Apostle John writing saying, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And he says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation of our sins. And brothers, if God loved us, we ought to love one another. You see, love embraced leads to love extended. And when I embrace and become secure in God's love for me, I am filled with his love. I am equipped and energized to give his love to those around me. And the beauty of this is this is a place, this is a place where our greatest need as humans, our greatest need as humans, which is the need to be known and loved, intersects with God's greatest gift which is his all-powerful, unrelenting, all-knowing, sacrificial, personal love by which he loves us. And you don't need a theology degree or a psychology degree or a sociology degree or an anthropology degree to know that humans desire to be loved. Believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, it's part of being human is this desire to be loved. We are born with those desires. And the beauty of the cross, friends, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of our faith, the beauty of our God, is that it gives an answer to both why we desire those things as humans, because we are made in the image of a personal God, and how those needs might be met, which is through God himself. God himself. What I think has happened to our culture in our day and age, and this is my opinion, so you can take a quarter and get a cold cup of coffee with this, okay? But what I think has happened to our culture is it has affirmed the need to be loved and yet simultaneously untethered it to the source of that love, which is God. And so you hear people say things all the time like this, and they're nonsensical. They say things like, hey, you are special because you are you. What does that even mean? You are special because you are you? That does not answer why you're special. It's not rooted in anything. And this gospel of self-esteem that is so prevalent in our culture 
has been disconnected from the gospel of grace and Jesus Christ. And it's resulted in a population that is simultaneously entitled and depressed. Entitled because they think it's everyone else's job to recognize how special they are. And how different and unique they are. And you better recognize it. So there's a sense of entitlement. And at the same time, there's a deep sense of depression. Because they know in their heart of hearts, they are deeply broken. And flawed. And they're not near as special as people have told them they are. And this tension of self-love and self-loathing is completely penetrated and recalibrated by the cross. There's a guy who pastors in in New York named Tim Keller, who's one of my heroes. He's my number two. Roger's my number one. Tim Keller's (laughs) my number two. And uh, Tim Tim Keller has a quote that I think nails this on the head. It's in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And if you read one marriage book in 2017, that's the one I'd recommend, is read Meaning of Marriage. And, And in that book, this is what Keller writes He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. And that is the beauty Because that's the type of love that does not lead to entitlement and it does not lead to depression, but that's the type of love that leads to immense gratitude and joy because it's completely by God's grace. God's love for us is not something we earn. It is something he gives, not because we are good, but because he is great. And the reality is that we're not lovable in and of ourselves, but God declares us lovable by the cross, at the cross, where he declares and reveals his love. You are special and you are valuable, but it's not because the amount of zeros at the end of your paycheck, it's not because of how many titles or degrees or trophies or how many people work under you. That's not what makes you special or valuable or unvaluable and unspecial. You are valuable Because you bear the image of God. You are valuable because God thought it was a worthy idea to take on flesh, to be born in a manger, to die on a cross, and to be raised from the dead. So he thinks you're immensely valuable. He thinks you're incredibly valuable, whether you believe it or not. And he shows that on the cross. And we cannot miss this. We we cannot miss the forest for the trees. We get so caught off sometimes and we get so sidetracked by peripheral things and we miss the redemptive love by which God loves us. The most uh, probably famous theologian of the 20th century was a German guy by the name of Karl Barth. Now, we would not agree with everything Barth wrote, but he was a scholar of the highest ilk, incredibly influential, and wrote an incredible amount. And he came to the United States one time. It was in 1962. 
And Dr. Bart was here and he was being interviewed. And, and, and the magazine interviewed him and said, Dr. Bart, tell us the, the secret. Tell us one thing. Boil down the millions of words you've written, the years of scholarship, and tell us the one truth that, that you think unpacks it all. And this is what Bart said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was his response. And so whether you are here today as someone who's never received, never trusted Christ, or someone who cannot remember a day where you didn't trust Christ, I think the message is the same, is that God loves you. And as you walk out those doors today, you need to know that God loves you right where you're at, right where you are. And the key to Christian life and the key to Christian unity is not that we try harder by our own strength to love. That is a love that is frail. That is a love that is broken. But rather we embrace the profound truth that the God of the universe loves us. And then we let that love work in and through and out of us. And that is simple yet profound, but it cannot just be intellectual. You must experience that and walk in that love. And so after preparing his heart for prayer by affirming the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God and then lifting up his prayer request that God would strengthen the inner man so that they would be rooted in Christ's love, which would overflow to others, Paul now closes with a doxology of praise in verses 20 and 21. This is our final part. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I want you to follow me here in your mind's eye. 2,000 years ago, Paul's in house arrest. And he's thinking about the challenges that face the church. He's sitting at his table. He's writing Ephesians. He's thinking about the challenges that face the church. The lack of unity. And he drops his pen. And he gets up and he walks over to the window. And he looks outside the window. And you know what he sees? He sees Rome the capital of the known world. And he knows that at that very moment, there's believers in Rome who are praying for him. That the church has been rooted in Rome. There are churches meeting in Rome. The gospel has landed in Rome and people are responding. And then he closes his eyes and he, and he thinks about his own conversion. That he was somebody who persecuted Christians, but then 30 years previously on that road to Damascus, God saved him and gave him a new life. And so he's buoyed by these thoughts and he goes back to the table because he's going to keep pumping out Ephesians. But before he does, he looks down at what he's already written by the Spirit of God. And he sees what will become Ephesians chapter 1 and the great triune work of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how he saved us. He then sees Ephesians chapter 2, and how it is the grace of God that makes dead men live, that brings carcasses and corpses to life. It's the grace of God. He's blown away. And then he goes to Ephesians 3, and he sees 
what God has done in the church as he's brought Jew and Gentile together. And Paul, once again, is just blown away. And the fact that God has allowed him to be the steward of this mystery, it's even more baffling. And as these thoughts stream through his mind, he is reminded of just who it is he's praying to. And so in verse 20, he says, the one who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power that works within us. I don't know where you are this morning. We have a lot of people in here, and each one of y'all walked through some set of doors. And when you walked through those doors, you brought something different. There's a lot of stories this morning. Everyone has a story, and I'm no different. It's been a hard week. Monday evening, I'm going to small group, and I get a call from a young lady who I poured years of ministry into whose husband is a guy that I've ministered with for years and who I have a deep friendship with. I I officiate their wedding. And she says, Michael, Tim's got cancer. Stage four colon cancer, 27. So Tori and I peel off the road and we head over to the hospital. And all I can think of is Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, the one who's able to do far more than we ask or think according to the power that works within us. God, we need you. We need you. We need you to do your work. I know that you are good. I know that you are faithful. I know that you are sovereign. God, will you move? Ephesians 3. So I don't know where you are. You may have a crumbling marriage. You may have financial struggles. You may have a child that you're struggling to parent. You may be wrestling with singleness. You may be wrestling with what God has for you. You may be wrestling with a health issue a moral failure that's caused you great harm. Maybe it's temptation that's just eating at you. Whatever it is that you brought in those doors, here's what I want you to hear. Here's what Paul wants you to hear. Here's what God wants you to hear. I love you right where you're at. And number two, he wants you to know that if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have everything you need to take on whatever it is that you face. For he is able to do more than we think according to the power that works within us. And so in closing, Paul's prayer for the believer was this. He said, God, would you strengthen them in their inner man? By the power of your spirit, would you charge their spiritual battery? Would you help them live out the life that they have been called to live and in the process experience great intimacy as Christ dwells in their heart by faith as a welcome guest? And as they experience this intimacy with Christ, what they realize is, holy smokes, God loves me. He loves me with a deep, sacrificial, unrelenting love. And I become filled with that love filled with it. And then it pours out on me. It pours out for me to all others who God has made in his image, who are of infinite value to every person from womb to those going to the tomb, every nationality, every race, black, white, Hispanic, every different religion, sexuality. It's not relativism. It's the fact that they're made in God's image. So we get to love them. 
We get to love them with a radical love as God fills us with his love. And in doing so, we glorify the God that came to save us. Because people look at the believer and they look at the church and they say, man, how he, they love. Those people love one another with a deep love that I know nothing about. And in doing so, they fulfill the words of Jesus in John chapter 13. When he told the disciples, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Even as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. It's the love of God working in and through us. It's love embraced becoming love extended. And this is the way forward for the believer. This is the way forward. This is the key to the Christian life. This is the key to Christian unity. This is the evidence of our adoption. This is the spiritual life as a son and a daughter of the living God. And it's completely enabled because God loves us. Let's pray. God, you are too wonderful to comprehend. And your love is too deep and too wide to even grasp. And even when we're in the midst of hard places, and God, you know that there are hard places. There are hard places in this life. We know that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are true, that you are sovereign, that you are loving, and that you love us. And that doesn't take away some of the deep hurt of this life, but it does fill us with deep and great hope that you love us and that we know what is to come. And so, God, I pray if there's anybody in here who's never received your love, if there's anybody in here who's never received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, God, they would know that you came to save and that you were mighty to save. And yes, they are broken, they are sinners. And yes, there is a problem with that because you are a holy God. But yes, you took care of that by your grace and by your love as you went to the cross and died for our sin. And you are offering us a way home, a way back to you. You're offering us the newness and the fullness of life and eternal life with you to come. And so, God, I pray you would stir in their hearts. You would bring them to a place of great faith and the work that you did on their behalf because of who you are. Lord, would you grant that? And those of us in here who do know you, Lord, God, I pray that you would break off the calluses that have covered our hearts. God, would you help us feel again? God, would we never become numb to the greatness of your love? Would your love never become some kind of mundane, theological truth to explore? But God, would we experience your love and walk in your love and extend your love as the church, as the body of Christ. So God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people that you have gathered together. God, may we be a blessing to you, for you are worthy. May we bring glory to you, for you are worthy. God, we thank you for loving us. Warts and all, doubts and all, struggles and all, 
addictions and all, failures and all. You love us. Help us receive that this morning.